Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. The dog days of summer, when the prospect of back to school seemed to leach the light from the sky as August dwindled into a succession of Sunday nights. The terrible return in September, the still hot summer, not summer sun taunting us through the windows of airless classrooms, forcing our capitulation, our dismal surrender to old men in tweed suits and chalk-stained soutans, to repetition and ritual and boredom. And then October, the first snap of autumn, and out of the house with us after tea, to play football until the light goes, we said, and we took the ball to the field, but it was apples we were after. With air you could breathe again, it was almost as if you could smell them. The lodge was down by the tracks and Morton's was on the way up the hill and we'd rob one or the other every night. To get to the lodge, you went through the gut, a rangy tangle of bramble, gorse and fern where we had played spin the bottle and learned how to smoke, up over a crumbling granite wall and along elaborate flower beds to the apple trees. Morton's, you dropped down into the weeds by the ASB substation and worked your way up the lane between housing estates to the tall spruce and yew, scuffled through a gap in the hedge, and then it was a short dash. Someone keep nicks for the gardener, jumpers jammed in our jeans, eight or nine apples stuffed down the front and then back, through the gut, through the lane, over the wall and into the field. The first bite sweet and bitter fruit as the stones sang and we were transported our cheeks cold in the falling night orion returning to patrol the sky bellies growling and cramping as we ate one two you could never manage a third but we always tried the lads were mostly kept in now studying for exams but they'd sometimes come out for a smoke break and they'd sometimes take an apple or two almost impressed by our hall. The apples were all very well, but they were only a taster for what was to come. Halloween, the greatest night in the year, when we were let loose, when the forbidden was permitted, when we could do anything. We didn't dress up and go door to door anymore, of course. We had put away childish things. We were 11. And we had found our own way of collecting apples. No, Halloween was all about fire and light and noise. Fizz bang, flash bang, flash gun smasher, little demon, little terror, mighty atom, cannon crasher, thunder flash, thunder clap, thunder crash, damn buster, fireworks made in England, light blue touch paper and stand well back. They sold them in Moore Street, 10 for 50p. None of us had been in town on our own, so an older boy got them from us, not one of the lads. They'd have laughed at our presumption. He'd take a banger a bundle in commission, which was fair. Oh, to have 18 bangers hidden in our rooms and the 31st hurtling closer by the day. We ate our apples and made our plans. We were conscious of history, of the giants who had gone before us and their great deeds. The lads all had girlfriends now, and six-packs and joints, but in their day, what hadn't they done? Burnt out a car, burnt down a house, a derelict house, but still, broken all the windows on the building site. But they never really did any of these things 
and neither did we. When Halloween finally came, we tumbled from bonfire to bonfire, from garden to garden, from waste ground to back lane, letting off bangers, pretending we didn't notice the girls. Sheila and Clodagh, Anna and Dawn, I could tell you now what color each one's eyes were. Questing for the next thing, the best thing, the thing that would raise us to lads, to absolute legends. We didn't find it. We ended the night hoarse and smoky and cold and a little sad. Like New Year's Eve, maybe Halloween was always better last year or somewhere else. But after All Saints Day Mass, with nothing in sight until Christmas, what a night we had had after all. Standing round the still smouldering bonfire, sulfur in the air, chewing our apples, telling our lies, the deeds we had done, the sights we had seen. We'd be telling them for a year until the following Halloween. On the 20th of October 1960, the inhabitants of Inishark left their island homes for the last time. They walked to the harbour laden with belongings. Most carried suitcases tied with strings. Some carried iron bedsteads, baths and brooms. One man had a homemade wardrobe fastened to his shoulders. A cat was transported in a cooking pot. Hens in baskets geese in sacks. Cows, donkeys, sheep and even a stack of hay were loaded onto boats. As they rode out from the harbour, I wonder what they thought about. The hopes they carried, the memories they left behind in the twelve remaining houses that faded out of view. The last 23 islanders were being evacuated from their isolated outpost and relocated to new homes on the mainland around 10 miles away at Cladaduff near Clifton, County Galway. An island died that day. Their fate was sealed two years previously when a young man died of appendicitis. Word of his illness reached the mainland five days too late. In desperation, the islanders lit a large fire on their highest hill in the hope that it would be seen on the neighbouring island of Inishbofin, just a mile away. Unlike Inishbofin, Inishark had no telephone line, not having the requisite 100 inhabitants to warrant one. And it was impossible to launch a boat in high winds and pounding waves. But one man, 73-year-old Thomas Lacey, refused to leave with the other islanders. Eleven years previously, his young sons, Martin and Michal and their cousin Peter were drowned in the treacherous channel between Inishark and Inishbofin. Their bodies were never recovered. 
Each morning from his front door, Thomas's eyes would scan that strip of cheating water that snatched his sons and almost broke him. That October evening, when everyone else had left, he walked the island alone, then returned home, lit a fire and set three places at the kitchen table for himself and for his lost sons. He prayed that they would send him a sign that they were at rest. Before he went to bed, he left the front door open in the hope that his sons would come to him that night. Next morning, Thomas left his island home, walked to the pier and did not look back. Today, in a shark is a desolate, rugged place. Silent ruins hold the stories of 300 people who for centuries called the island their home. Among them, the Murrays, the Clunans, the Hollerans, the Lavelles and the Lacys. In the schoolhouse, dances were held on the feast of their patron, St Leo. Children grew up with an easy familiarity. On long winter evenings, Paraffin lamps were lit and neighbours played cards in one another's houses. When paraffin ran out, lard was melted in a saucer and a wick inserted to provide light. Every St John's night, the islanders gathered on the hillside and made a large bonfire. Afterwards, they spread the ashes over potato drills. This, they maintained, made their potatoes taste better than mainland ones. On the thousand acres of rocky pasture, which is in a shark, they cut turf peat for the fire, sold rows of vegetables, made bread when they had flour and survived on what cattle, sheep, fish and fowl could provide. The shark men were daring and brave, with a reputation for being the best boatmen on the west coast. But there were times when the battering Atlantic beat them into submission and cut them off from the outside world. The sea, beyond their tiny landing strip, became a perilous cauldron and they went without tea, sugar and paraffin for weeks on end. As family after family emigrated, the survival of those who stayed became more precarious. When men went out fishing at night, their wives and mothers would lie awake listening for the sound of a change in the wind terrified that their husbands and sons might not return, and many never did. In 2010, on the 50th anniversary of their evacuation, their former curate, Father Flannery, celebrated Mass for the islanders. He recalled the day he failed to persuade Thomas Lacey to leave in a shark along with the others. But he said... Thomas later told him that his sons had come to him that night and talked to him and he was happy that they were at peace. On the wings of the wind all the dark rolling deep Angels are called Watch all I sleep Angels are coming To watch over
Picture this. The place is Dublin. A middle-aged man is anxiously awaiting the launch of his latest book. He has already published four others, most of which are now long forgotten. His first book didn't exactly set the literary world on fire. The Duties of the Petty Sessions of Ireland hardly tops the bestseller lists. But his novel, which would be published in May 1897, was about to change all that. This was the book by which this former civil servant from Dublin would be remembered. The author of that groundbreaking novel was Bram Stoker, and the book, of course, is Dracula. No less a writer than Stephen King, one of the world's most prolific creators of horror fiction, has said of Bram Stoker, I feel as close to this man as anyone who is not a blood relative could possibly feel. After all, without his groundbreaking novel about a Transylvanian count, my field of fiction might very possibly not even exist. Dracula has never gone out of print. Over the years, a massive industry has built up around it. Countless films, TV adaptations, stage plays and numerous literary imitations. But none of them can equal the gothic horror which lies between its covers in the form of diaries, letters, telegrams and memos. But what of Bram Stoker himself? For the first seven years of his life, young Abraham Stoker lived at number 15 Merino Crescent Clontarf, an elegant three-storey house set in what is the only Georgian crescent in Dublin. It was here, while Bram as a little child was practically bedridden, that his mother filled his young mind with real-life accounts of death, mass graves and the horror of cholera, the invisible enemy which had invaded Ireland in 1832. Just a few short years earlier, life had been under lockdown. Cholera was rampant and the death toll had risen at an alarming rate. Bram's mother, Charlotte, remembering all these horrific events, entertained her young and ailing child with these dark stories. These terrifying tales certainly ignited his growing, active imagination and influenced his writings. For at one stage, Bram himself said, I was naturally thoughtful and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. And fruitful they certainly were. But the style of writing with which he would be most associated was far removed from his earliest literary attempts. Bram was particularly interested in the theatrical world, so he became theatre critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. One review he wrote determined the course of his life for the next 27 years. Bram attended a performance of Hamlet at the Theatre Royal in Dublin and gave the lead actor, Henry Irving, a particularly good review. Subsequently, Bram developed a very close friendship with Henry Irving and was offered the position as his business manager at the Lyceum Theatre London. It was during those years that Bram wrote Dracula. As to the model on which Bram based his most famous creation, there just may be a clue in how he depicts Dracula. His face was a strong, 
a very strong aquiline, with a high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily around the temples but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. That would have been a very accurate description of Henry Irving himself. In the end, it's interesting to think that Bram's fictional creation Dracula wanted immortality and, at least for a while, seemed to have succeeded. Bram Stoker, the man from Clontarf, just wanted to write a good story. In doing so, he has found his own literary immortality in a tale which lives on and, like his literary creation Count Dracula, simply refuses to die. All Saints' Day Mass celebrated the 1st of November, rattling off the names of the martyrs yet to be canonised. Seriously? Where were the patron saints of good dry and weather, moody washing machines, nappy buckets and clothes that don't need the bang of an iron? And just which holy soul will intercede when your dust and cobwebs hoovering dog hairs, mopping floors and shifting some unidentifiable stinky blob off the kitchen tiles beside the bin. On your hands and knees is right. In the end, Ma left the gaff, out the gap, to bask in the light of winter sunshine and praise the patron saint of no housework. I plan to do the same myself this All Saints Day. Sisters and brothers, this is Reverend Satchmo getting ready to beat out this mellow sermon for you. My text this evening is when the saints go marching in. Here come Brother Hickenbottom down the aisle with his trombone. Blow it, boy. On Christmas Eve in Rome I went for a walk through the shadowed cobbled back streets that lead from the old working class quarter of Trastevere by the banks of the Tiber to the Vatican. In the houses families were gathering. Radios played Pacini. The darkness of the alleys seemed sanctified by hope. I was thinking of Hugh O'Flaherty. I can't remember the first time I heard his story but I've an idea it was in Listowel, County Kerry. 
late one night, perhaps in John B. Keane's bar. Someone told me about Hugh O'Flaherty's courage in Rome during World War II, how he and a small band of fellow activists saved thousands from the Nazis. Home in London, the more I researched him, the more I was amazed. Five years ago, when I was wondering what to write a novel about, Hugh came knocking on my windows. His courage is gripping, but it is also inspiring. It always had the makings of a tense psychological thriller, I thought, with a beautiful soundtrack ranging from Italian opera to Palestrina, and that's what I hoped to create when finally I sat down to write his story. But there are other colours and implications to that story too, including the ones that altered my own life. Born in Cork, raised in Kerry, Hugh came of age around the mistrust of English soldiers that was one bequest of the Black and Tans. Yet his journey took him to a point where he lived stubbornly by his own moral compass, even when faced with the threat of Gestapo interrogation and execution. He was that rarest of things, a person who wouldn't take orders from any side. Commanded by the Irish government, as well as the Vatican and the Germans, to cease his work, he continued his secret and perilous mission, saving 7,000 escaped British and American prisoners from death. His small group of trusted activists came from very different backgrounds. Sir Francis Darcy Osborne, Britain's ambassador to the Holy See, was a public school-educated aristocrat who had at one time been close to the late Queen Mother. He and Hugh became co-conspirators. Newark-on-Trent-born Lieutenant Colonel Sam Derry of the Royal Artillery was a tower of strength for the escape line, a stunningly brave soldier who had himself escaped Nazi camps several times, on one occasion by jumping from a moving train. There was John May, a cockney, a servant at the British Embassy, described by Derry as a brilliant scrounger. It's touching that this group of such high-minded human rights defenders also needed one thief. Also central to the escape line was Delia Kiernan, known to fans of Irish folk music as the great Delia Murphy. Married to Ireland's senior diplomat in Rome, Thomas Kiernan, the first director of Radio Erin, Delia quietly flouted Dublin's insistence on non-involvement in the war, showing tremendous personal courage in assisting Hugh. It was in February 2020, as Covid came to Ireland, that I sat down to write Hugh's story. What a blessing, when I remember the fear and unease of those months, the headlines, the sufferings and the courage of carers. The world shrank to two kilometres, but I was going to Rome every day. I decided to call the book My Father's House, after a saying of Jesus, in my father's house are many rooms. Hugh hid fugitives in attics and cellars, in outhouses and monasteries, in the many secret rooms of hidden Rome. Every morning I made myself write a thousand words about him. He was one of the things that helped to keep me sane. I walked around Rome with him, looked through his eyes, attempted to understand a man so many times more heroic than I could ever be. I set the story on Christmas Eve because the Romans love Christmas, but also because the story of the first Christmas has its own vein of persecutions. There are angels, but there is also Herod.
I wrote hundreds of sentences and would almost hear Hugh telling me, no, that's not right, or I didn't talk the way you have me talking. I was from Kerry, not Dunleary. Sometimes Hugh made me laugh. Once or twice, he made me cry. Morning after morning, sentence after sentence, as his story appeared on my pages. Looking at it now, a finished book, I sometimes wonder where it came from, through that frightened, panicky time, when even in isolation we relied so much on each other. But I know, of course, it came from the Hugh O'Flaherty who lived in my head through the lockdown, my lamplighter through the book that is now his. I thought of him as I walked the back streets of his beloved adoptive city on Christmas Eve, his stubborn, quiet defiance, his hidden passion for justice, his extraordinary modesty, his love. The stars of Christmas glittered in the cold Roman sky over St. Peter's and the Colosseum, over the steeples and palaces. In the alleys through which he led so many thousands to freedom, I felt his brave and noble spirit move like a rumour, a Roman, a scholar, a carryman, a hero. You'd inhale the smoggy air in the weeks leading up to October's close until the back of your nose stung and your eyes watered. You'd hear the wailing fire brigade sirens advance and fade as they were called out endlessly to extinguish premature blazes in green areas. You'd sniff the pungent odour of 20 pence stink bombs and revel in the noise of bangers and whining dogs that could be heard through the single glazing of each house in the estate. A Dublin Halloween in the 80s was a spectacular thing. We'd pour into the local newsagent's shop from early October to buy our tenpenny bags and ooh and ah over the Halloween masks which were strung around the shop. The masks, for a witch or a monster or a vampire, were made from cheap, hard, imported plastic. They had an elastic string around the back, a string that always broke. The eye slits and tiny nose holes induced a sense of suffocation when you put them on, but we knew no different. Witches' hats made from rolled cardboard with purple and orange stars were on offer too, hanging in bunches behind the shop counter. You could pair them with a cape made from a black plastic bin liner. The black sack was versatile. It could accompany all masks, the monster, the witch and the vampire. A roll of tinfoil was also our friend and could cover homemade cardboard crowns and wands to add glitter and shimmer for those who wanted to dress as a fairy in last year's communion dress. And then, as the days of October fell off the calendar, came the best bit. Building the bonfire. We poured from the school gates at three o'clock, grabbing a sandwich before joining the scrum to collect wood, tyres and rubbish from back gardens to add to the pile. 
There was a sense of belonging as each of us threw our bits onto the growing pyramid. It was territorial too. There were those on watch at each mound to make sure no one from another estate robbed their gear, or worse, set a match to it too early. The local neighbourhood watch committee would prowl around to ensure the bonfires weren't set too close to anyone's back wall or any bushes that could go up in flames. As orange streetlights flicked on one by one and the bonfire building children scurried home for cover, other menaces came out to play in the weeks leading up to Halloween. My mother had a nightly ritual of cutting strips of brown tape to paste over our inner letterbox. Gurriers were known to throw bangers and stink bombs into hallways and blocking off the letterbox was the only deterrent. The tape had to be ripped off first thing in the morning to allow the postman to deliver his letters and make sure the Evening Herald newspaper could be popped in early evening. The taping of the letterbox made me feel safe as chaos seemed to reign outside once darkness fell for those thrilling autumn weeks. As the big day approached, the costumes were ready and the plastic St Bernard bags were double bagged. Once the light faded, we'd shuffle door to door, our black sacks flapping around our ankles. Help the Halloween party, we echoed, as monkey nuts, grapes with pips and mandarin oranges were plopped into our bags. Older siblings held the younger ones' hands. The fruit-filled bags got heavy, Small feet got tired and the smoke and crackle of bonfires ignited the fields around the estate as bangers smacked like a soundtrack to accompany the night. I was warned never to go near the bonfires, but always sneaked over. Just that little bit too close until my cheeks blazed from the heat. My children know nothing of an 80s Dublin Halloween as I order their costumes online. They don't hear fireworks. We live in the west of Ireland where only bright stars puncture a still night sky. On Halloween here, we call to houses as prearranged between parents and WhatsApp groups. Still, our children find their own magic. My mother still lives in our childhood home in Dublin. We are all grown up and gone. My sisters and I tell her not to open the door Halloween night as we worry about her. Our leave me be it's grand, she says, and stacks fun-sized chocolate bars and bags of jellies in the plastic dish inside the front door, waiting to open it to a new generation of trick-or-treaters, as they are now called. I picture my mother this Halloween, her hall light on, waiting for the doorbell, just as she did in the 80s when we were kids. She doesn't tape the letterbox anymore. There's no need she doesn't worry the bonfires will spread to her shed. The council stopped bonfires being built on the green space near her house years ago. But some things remain the same. Costumed children will still emerge from closed doors on Halloween night, faces painted, sweet buckets in hand, eyes bright with excitement as they go from door to door in the Dublin darkness. On this morning's mixture of new and recent archive scripts, we heard Halloween by Declan Hughes. The Last to Leave was by Breda Joyce. The Immortal Story by Patrick Griffin. All Saints Day, a poem by Rachel Hegarty. 
Courage in the Alleys by Joseph O'Connor. And that was rebroadcast to mark the 60th anniversary today of the death of Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. And lastly, an 80s Halloween was by Grania Quinlan. And the music? Libertango by Piazzola, played by the far-flung trio. The Connemara Cradle Song, sung by Tommy Makem with the Clancy Brothers. Dracula by Philip Glass, performed by the Kronos Quartet. When the Saints Go Marching In by Louis Armstrong and his orchestra and Luli Lula Lule, arranged by Philip Stopford and sung by the Veritas Chamber Choir from St Columbus College, which was directed by Eunan MacDonald. Joseph O'Connor's novel about Hugh O'Flaherty, My Father's House, is published by Harville Seeker. And that essay of Joe's we heard earlier is included in another book you might be interested in, Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, which has just been published by New Island Books. It's in the shops now and it's been nominated for an Irish Book Award. And if you'd like to vote in that competition, you can do that at irishbookawards.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and this morning's programme was produced by Sinead Egan and Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.